You have reached a phone call from Paul. Prepare to be entertained and moved. A chat with Elizabeth Gilbert. Part 1. Hello? Hello, is this Elizabeth Gilbert? Is this Paul Hoddengraber? It is. I'm so happy you're taking this phone call from Paul. I'm delighted. Nothing would make me happier, Paul. I want a phone call from you every single day of my life. I well, love talking to you. I love talking to you. Tell me, where does this find you? With I am in Miami Beach on a beautiful, hurricane overcast day with the most remarkable inky skies. It's fantastic. I love it here in this kind of weather. And, and what takes you there? I'm, I'm relaxing. I'm on my book tour, and I have an event in Miami on Monday, so I built in a couple of extra days, and my sweet husband is here with me. I've been on tour for about three and a half weeks, so this is just a little break. So you've caught me at a moment of repose, which is really, really lovely. <laughs> And 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 what are you what are you what are you spending your days doing when you're not on this tour now in Miami? You know, it's weird. The first thought I have every morning when I wake up is this kind of panic alarm of oh my god, what am I supposed to be doing today? Um, because I've been for the last month very much full on in promoting my new book, and so. I look at the time and I think, did I miss an interview? Did I miss a flight? Am I supposed to be going to Atlanta today? Am I supposed to be in San Diego? And it takes me a while to kind of realize, oh, you don't have to do anything today. So I'm exercising and I'm reading and I'm doing a little bit of work on the novel that I'm working on. And Jose and I are spending a lot of time trying to figure out what we're going to eat next. It really does feel sort of like vacation. But you may be the same way where... It's not the easiest thing in the world to do nothing for people uh, like, no, it, like I, me I, and you. I, I think you're right. I think we we know each other sufficiently to know that this notion. I mean, I, I keep reminding people that the word vacation actually means to vacate. It means right. to empty out. Um, I'm very good at reminding other people to do that. Right. I'm right. less good at taking my own advice. Uh, which is often right. the case, and and that leads me immediately to think, um, what do you think it is about about you, in some sense, that makes you feel as though you're you're missing an appointment? I mean, the ne nearly the necessity in Liz's life of being diligent. Yeah, well, I think it's two things. One is um, I have this DNA of having been raised on a farm, so if you wake up and it's already daylight then you're already behind, right? The animals haven't been milked yet and the eggs haven't been collected. And there's a certain sort of farmer, kind of farmer ethic that says you have to be up before the sun or else you're already behind on all the chores that you have to do. So I grew up in a, in a family where chores were, were kind of driven into. So I feel like part of it is that. That's the anxiety part of it. And the less pathological part of it is that I've realized that I really love my vocation. Um, and I really love my work as a writer. And so I've now given myself permission to work on my writing while I'm on vacation because otherwise I, I'll be lonely from it, from not having it, you know? Um, and so I used to think I should put that away. I should just relax. But 
but actually the happiest that I can possibly be is when I'm working on a new book. So part of this little vacation holiday that I have here for a few days, I'm giving myself the the joy of sitting for three hours doing research every day about the book that I'm working on because nothing will make me more relaxed than that. And and I don't think that's pathological. I think that the part about, oh my God, I missed a flight. Oh my God, I missed an appointment. I think there is a little bit of something <laughs> in, in that. There's uh, a little bit of pathology but, in but that. It but comes I, probably I think from loving the farm, your work. You know? it, yeah. it, it comes, yeah. and, and what kind, I mean, I want to come back to the loving the work. Actually, why don't I start with that because I'm afraid of, as you know, I'm, I'm a quotomaniac. And so I, I, there's this one quotation that comes to mind immediately as you're talking, which quotations serve for me as signposts. I, I think they're much less yeah. about, about anything else. They, 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 they help me in moments of joy as they help me in moments of sorrow. And, in, right. and, uh, Baudelaire famously, at least for me famously, said, um, it is better to work uh, than to have fun because working is less boring than having fun. <laughs> if I could find a thing to do that was more fun than my work, I would do it. You know, um, the, the, the poet Donald Hall. Have you ever read his memoir, Life Work? No, but but um, oh, but I, I but I will. I, I want to talk another poet, and you know who, but not quite. Yeah, yeah. I know who. Oh, Donald! I just read this memoir. He, I loved this book so much because he writes about how much he loves his work. Now it's very hard to find artists who will say that because there's a certain red badge of courage that comes from complaining. Donald Hall has a great line where he says, all complaining is boasting. <laughs> um, anyway, oh, that oh, is fantastic. That, right, that reminds right. me of someone else, yes. That yeah, is fantastic. But isn't, it, isn't that great? And so he says he often gets what he feels like unnecessary credit from people who admire his work ethic because of how diligent he is about his, his, his vocation and his poetry. And he said, I don't know why I get credit for this. I love doing this. If I woke up every single day and I ate an entire bag of Hershey's Kisses, you wouldn't say, like, wow, you're so diligent about eating every single one of that pound of, of chocolates. He said, I would do that because I like eating Hershey's Kisses. I shouldn't get credit for doing the work that I love. Um, and, and so I think it's really it's a great pleasure for me to, to bask in that line and to think, yeah, that's how I feel too, like, I'm diligent about the thing I love doing. It's like I'm diligent about drinking a bottle of wine every night with my husband because we love doing it. Um. <laughs> and and we, we, uh, we, when I say we, I, I don't only mean in America, but I mean in particular in America, we, we love saying how busy we are and mm-hmm. how tired we are and how preoccupied we are and how much we're working. And um, we love to boast in some way of working. Yeah. We also love saying really, if only I could work less. And what you're trying right. to say is, no, no, no. Oh, yes, I'm taking this vacation in Miami. It is beautiful. It reminds me sort of what my, my mother also often said, um, you know, it, it's beautiful, but 
what should I do about it? Um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's beautiful, but, but let me get to work in some sense. Let me do what something. Should, what do you want me to do about it? It's beautiful. Oh, it is so beautiful, great. and Miami is beautiful, and it is gorgeous. And, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be down there not, in not too long uh, speaking to, to Ben Lerner and to Adam Phillips and to Paul Goldberger for the Miami oh, Book Fair. Adam and, and, oh, Adam Phillips. Oh, I wish I could be there. Yeah, if only we had the gift of ubiquity. The only way we can find each other, it would seem, is on a phone call from Paul but this is good. Um, so, so coming back to, to the diligence of, um, uh, and the work ethic, which I think is deeply rooted in, in, in your DNA, as it were, in your, in your bones, yeah. that, that uh, and which you often have spoken about, of a certain form of Protestantism in, in some way that, that, yeah. that, that inhabits you. That, that farm, tell me a little bit more about, about that farm. I, I know it was a farm that, that people still to this day, who I know go and get their Christmas trees from. Yeah, I know. My parents, so my parents, oh my gosh, how old am I? I'm 46. We moved there when I was four, and they planted their first Christmas trees when I was six. So 40 years um, they've been they've been running this farm. And the thing about it is that it's that's really cool is that it was their creative project as well as a... Um, you know, it was a way to make money, but it was also really a creative project for them. And my parents both always had jobs outside the farm and outside of the home. My mom was a nurse and my dad was an engineer, and they didn't quit those jobs to run this farm. They did the farm in addition to these jobs, which I also think was a fantastic lesson for me to grow up absorbing that that they had certain responsibilities. They had two children to raise and to put through college, and they needed you know regular jobs and health insurance in order to be able to do those things. But then they also said, well, that doesn't forbid us from raising goats and chickens and Christmas trees because um, we're interested in that. And my dad was also a beekeeper, so um, he also had honeybees. Um, and so I think what I saw was people doing what they wanted to do with a certain impunity, right? Like the way my dad decided to start raising goats was he he drove us in the Ford Pinto to the neighbor's, the nearest goat farm and bought two goats and brought them home in the car. <laughs> Suddenly we had goats. Like, didn't go and get, you know, didn't ask permission, didn't take a class in goat raising, you know, just just kind of went and did these things they were interested in. And the things they were interested in required quite a lot of work and labor. And but they didn't mind that because they enjoyed doing that. Um, so, so I think even in the work, see, I think what I saw in my parents was that even when the work was boring, because a lot of farm work is very boring and repetitive, it's interesting if you do it long enough, right? If you stay through the tedious part, you get to the really interesting part, which is also what I think writing is. That which is very I much think a lot of, what you're trying to, to yeah. say recently. Yeah, and I think a lot of what I see people calling artistic anguish is actually just them not being able to deal with tedium. Because a lot of what creativity is, is some of, you know, some of it's quite boring. But I even like the boring part now. Because I know if you stay to the boring part, you get to the really interesting part. Um, but the tedium is also part of work and also part of creativity. Don't mistake it, don't mistake it for anguish. It's near, it's merely tedium. <laughs> it's only boring. It's not going to kill you. And if you, if you stick with it, then all of a sudden it gets interesting again. But you see, here I, I, I think that you, you and Werner Herzog really come together, which is in the sense of, an anti-romantic view of what it means to go to to work and create. 
Right. Not yeah. not a, you know, the anguished artist. As as you say in, in Big Magic, your most recent book, you know, you relay that story of your Italian friend. Well maybe you should tell it. Right. I love I love this story. It's um, a friend of mine who was an independent filmmaker in Italy wrote an anguished cry of the heart letter in the night once to his hero, Werner Herzog, saying, you know, I'm I'm falling apart here with my art. I can't get any satisfaction out of it. There's, why do I even bother to make films? There's no funding anymore. There's no grants available. The public has lost their appetite for serious work like mine, and all they want is crappy American Hollywood movies. I can't get actors who are willing to work and things I want to do. Nobody shares my vision. Just like a litany of complaints. And um, I just don't have any motive to do this anymore. And now, now why somebody would turn to Ver... <laughs> of all people, for a warm shoulder to cry on is beyond me, right? But but he did, and Werner wrote him back a letter that he still has framed and hanging over his desk, and the first line of it was, stop your complaining and get back to work. Nobody wants to hear it. And And the line that I love in the letter was, it is not the world's fault that you wanted to be an artist, and it is not the world's responsibility to either like your art or pay for it. It is your responsibility to take stewardship of this thing that you care about. So you go do whatever you need to do to make your films. If you have to steal a camera, steal a camera. If you have to coerce people to work for you, then do it. But don't put it on the world and say that it's somebody else's fault that this is difficult. Of course it's difficult. Now go back and do your work, right? The difficult thing is what makes it interesting. And, and it seems like a rebuke, but I actually think that letter was a kind of a permission for it and a kind of liberation. It's a great gift when somebody reminds you how much agency you have over the situation that you're in um, and that you're not, in fact, maybe as weak and helpless as, you, as you've imagined that you are. Yeah, and that, and that in, in, in some way um, the, the, the complaining gets you away from truly knowing that the person who can do something about it is you. And it also drives away inspiration, which is the heart of my whole magical thinking about creativity is this idea that inspiration is this strange otherworldly force that wants to work with you just as much as we want to work with it. And like any sentient force in the universe, it likes to be liked. And if you walk around all day complaining about how awful it is, I think you push it away. And I think it says, well, look, I'll go, I'll go somewhere where my services are welcome. <laughs> I'll go to an artist who's happy to receive me and, and deal with me and doesn't just want to complain about how awful I am. You know, um, I think it drives the work away. And I can feel that in myself whenever I start complaining. That my inspiration channel kind of closes do off. And you, it will do, be you, do you find yourself complaining a fair amount? Not, not really. I'm not, a, I'm, not much of a, I'm not much of a complainer. I, I um, you know, I, I, I indulge in it once in a while, but I indulge in it the same way that I... Every once in a while, we'll eat an entire bag of Fritos or gossip for three hours about somebody, you know, knowing as I'm doing it, this isn't really very good for me. You know, um, I'm going to let myself do it. I've had a hard day, but the sooner we can put this bag of, of, of artificially flavored corn chips down or the sooner we can stop slandering somebody the better I'm going to feel, right? Um, and, so, so I, when, when, uh, yeah. Especially when the person you're slandering is, is yourself. Um, <laughs> well, well uh, I mean, the stuff, I, mean, I think you, you have such interesting things to say, certainly have said them to me about self-loathing. Oh, I'm so self-loathing. What can we do I, about it? You know, I, you know, I've, I've been thinking more and more that I feel like I want to write a book about this because I feel like is that the next book? 
I don't know how the next book's a novel, but, but I think maybe after that. Okay. You know, I, I think I think we have such a problem with this in the Western world. And my favorite meditation teacher, the great Pema Chodron, who's the, the first woman ever to have been ordained as a as a monk um in the in a certain Tibetan Buddhist line, she she said, you know, her her masters when they came from the East for the first time to the West to teach Buddhism, they were they were actually just staggered by the amount of self hatred that they encountered. They nothing in their nothing in their world had prepared them for that. And everything that they had thought they were coming here to teach us, you know, especially in America, they had to just put all of it on hold and just say, We can't do any of this until you guys get off this thing. <laughs> this is a real problem. Everything that you're looking for is on the other side of that self loathing. And I was reading the article you sent me that your friend Adam Phillips wrote about self-hatred, and, and I believe, unless I imagine this, that he's got a line in there saying that, that self-hatred is the only socially acceptable way that we're allowed to think about ourselves all the time. Yeah, it's, nearly the, <laughs> it's nearly the first line, and it's such a great one. Right? Yeah. How did you um, understand it, that? Well, just that it's 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 socially acceptable narcissism, and I think the way that, I, I mean, I, I'm not obviously not a, a Tibetan master, but I think the way that they might look at that is to say, because you haven't forgiven yourself for being a human being, because you haven't realized the central dilemma of how difficult it is to be a person, because you haven't realized and you haven't shown empathy toward the fact that you and everyone around you are all suffering in the same dilemma of how difficult it is to be a human being, and because you haven't sort of taken on your ego in a gentle, friendly way, um, you are so freaked out by how much you think about yourself that the only thing you can think of to do with it is to turn it into self-hatred because anything else will look like you're putting yourself on a pedestal. So I guess that's what you're doing here. Um, you know, whereas there are other ways to think about the fact that we think about ourselves all the time <laughs> um, that are more kind um, and, and more gentle and, and more more humane and more empathetic. You know, I always say we all want to go out there in the world and be kind, compassionate, forgiving. All of us do. We're all good people. We all want to try to be good people and kind people. And conveniently, there's somebody that you live with 24 hours a day who you can practice all of that on all the time. And it's yourself, and it's the last person we ever think of to practice it on. But it's such a good, you know, it's such a good um, patient that you've got to work with. <laughs> if, only, right, if, only, if only that patient at some points was a little more patient, and maybe with him yeah. or herself. Yes, I mean, a little more kind. I mean, the, the kind of compassion and sweetness that we want to be able to show to others, we can't get anywhere near that until we, we learn how to extend a friendly hand toward our own messed up, jacked up selves, you know? Um, and that's that's something that only we can do. So, so yeah, and it, it doesn't help us. It doesn't... No. Your self-hatred's not serving anybody. It's not making the world a better place. It's not making it any easier for people to be around you. And I think somehow we've associated that self-hatred with a kind of nobility, that that's the highest position you can take, the most austere position that you can take is to hold your feet to the fire, right? I don't think so. As if, you know, as, as I, if in that moment we were, um, I, I'm, we were more authentic. Uh, yes. we, were, we were closer to who really we are because we have unmasked ourselves as someone right. as someone really rather mediocre, and therefore, and, and therefore, since we are mediocre, let's start hating ourselves. And we'll unmask ourselves before anyone else can too. So it's like a sort of defense, 
you know, you can't tell me anything about myself I don't already know. But it's so um, much less interesting than another form of unmasking in one of the great literary works, I think, Cyrano de Bergerac, when, when Cyrano speaks about having a long nose before anybody else can tell him he has a long nose. He does it, right. you know, in a poetic way. Our form of self-loathing is so often not in the least poetic. And it is, and it's also, you know, the, the word kindness that you use quite a few times is also very close to, since you had the kindness of, of mentioning Adam Phillips, who's this English psychoanalyst I, I deeply, dearly admire, who has books with titles like On Kissing, Tickling, and Being Bored, just a magnificent Yeah, I mean, you've, magnificent you've, you've introduced me to him. And he's, yeah. just, he's just so wonderful. wonderful. But, but he wrote wonderful. a book on kindness, and he yeah. reminds us of the etymology. I mean, it, it means of kind. It's of kin. Um, right. It's like us. Uh, right. we're, we're part of the same family. And kindness is so often seen as a weak virtue, as a weak quality, mm. when in fact it may be very strong and bold to be kind. It's brave also. Yeah. <laughs> it's brave because it means that you... See, I think where we, we go halfway there, I think when we indulge in self-hatred, we only go halfway. We don't go all the way. So the halfway stop is that we say, I'm going to be totally honest about myself. Right. Right. And I'm going to, I'm going to call myself on my own bullshit and I'm going to, I'm going to not have any lies about what a dirtbag I am, basically. Right. So, okay. That's something, right? It is, it is a, it is a kind of honesty. Um, probably true. The stuff that you're calling yourself out on, you know, maybe you are a liar and maybe you are despicable and maybe you are lazy and maybe you are judgmental and maybe you are, maybe all of those things. Okay. Okay. <laughs> let's start, let's not stop the, right. we don't stop the story there. We don't complete the story by stopping it there. The next thing is to say, and so are we all, right? And so have we all always been, which is why the humanities are so beautiful to explore, because they show us our shared humanity. So the dilemma that I'm struggling with here is the same as yours, it's the same as my neighbors, it's the same as my sisters, it's the same as my critics. We're all sharing the central dilemma of how hard it is to be a person. And now what are we to do with this, right? Now, are we to abuse ourselves? forever about this or are we to say okay I fell short again of the kind of person that I want to be but perfection is not attainable I didn't come here to be a saint I came here to be a human being and part of the human experience is is to be generous and you know it's the same with how I review you know I said something today on, on Facebook about brutal honesty you know you have those friends who advertise themselves as being brutally honest um, as, if, as if it's a virtue <laughs> Um, like, oh, don't worry, I'll be brutally honest with you about your work. I always say, don't, don't share anything about yourself with that kind of a person. Because honesty with brutality is not a virtue. Honesty has to be softened by kindness in order to be a virtue. And that goes for the honesty and the criticism that we say about other people. And it also goes for the honesty and the criticism that we say about ourselves. So to look at yourself with brutal honesty is not an act of grace. You don't get any special credit for that. You know, it's looking at yourself with kind honesty where you can actually start to make process as a human being and start to start to be less than a less than a sum of your anxieties and, and your fears and your rage and maybe just a more generous soul.
The Other People with Brad Listy podcast is a free weekly program featuring in-depth, inappropriate interviews with today's leading authors. You can hear me in conversation with everybody from George Saunders to Cheryl Strayed to Hilton Owls, Susan Orlean, Roxanne Gay, Jonathan Franzen, Maggie Nelson, Brett Easton Ellis, Otessa Moshveg, and many more. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and the entire archive is available for free. That's hundreds of conversations with great writers, uncensored. Go get it. Visit otherppl.com and follow the show on Twitter at otherppl. (laughs) 